so we are in a section in the book of Daniel, chapter 9. Open up your Bibles. It is prophecy. Prophecy is gut-wrenching. I want to just tell you on the front end. There are no niceties in prophecy. Prophecy just breaks through all the little nice fluffy language of life, and it makes you stare reality in the face. Um, whenever a preacher has to pre- preach on prophecy, rarely does he say, yay, I get to make everybody feel good. This is actually one of these times where you have to look at reality and the future and God's will and wrap our hearts and our heads around what's going on here. So to start off, I want to ask you a question. What kind of person would you let live in your home for a year while you were gone? What kind of person would you let live in your home for a year while you were gone? What kind of person... Would you tell your deepest, darkest secret to? Think about it. Some of you know what the secret is and nobody knows. What kind of people would you give your kids to should you pass away? Let me give you the answer. Proven, trustworthy, right? Proven, trustworthy. This morning in Daniel chapter 9, God has something of great weight, significance, value, importance to himself. And Daniel is going to give this thing, or God is going to give this thing to Daniel, this message. It's actually a prophetic word. He's going to give it to Daniel to steward. And Daniel, we're going to watch as this text unfolds. Daniel has proven himself trustworthy to receive, hear me, the most important prophetic word that the Jewish people had received to date. There was no word that was more meaningful and precise and spoke more directly into their current situation than what happens at the end of Daniel chapter 9. So open up with me in your notes and you'll see their context. We're going to start in verse 1. Let's get our head around where we're at historically. Uh, In the first year of Darius, the son of, who can say this? Ahasuerus. That's the right way to say it. It's tricky. Ahasuerus. You got it? Good? We're good? All right. Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who has made the king over the realm of the Chaldeans. The year is roughly 539 BC. Okay, so we're talking a long time ago, 539 BC. One year prior, uh, the Babylonian Empire was the worldwide empire of the day. One year prior, Darius took over the city of Babylon and ushered in the reign of the Medo-Persian Empire. We are one year into this new reign. Babylon the Great has fallen, but the people of God are still in exile. Um, Daniel at this time is roughly 80 years old. When Daniel was around 15 years old, Daniel was taken from his home in Israel and Jerusalem, shipped along with many of his other countrymen, eight to 900 miles east to Babylon, taken as slaves, and everything that they ever knew of reality was destroyed and shaken up. The people of Israel, though a couple generations now expanded, are still in Babylon. Now, though, we have a new rule, a new economy, a new empire, new leadership. It has transitioned from Babylon to the Medo-Persian Empire. And so historically, this is where we're at. And the longing of God's people, the longing of Daniel, I want you to hear me, is this. When are you going to vindicate us and send us home? When can we get out of this God-forsaken place and go to our homeland and rebuild? When are you going to make right what the Babylonians have destroyed? And so point number one in your notes, we're going to look at Daniel's trustworthy heart. Daniel Nine opens up with an incredibly vulnerable, powerful prayer to God. It is a prayer of confession 
And it is a plea to God for mercy. Would you have mercy on us? And would you send us home? This is where we want to be. We're gonna get to Daniel's prayer in a minute, but first I need to show you what to look for in this prayer. So this is one of those prayers where you could open up the Bible and you could read this 20 verse prayer and you would step back and say, that is so beautiful and amazing. You need to sometimes just walk away from this sermon and read the prayer, it's astounding. But there are a few things that you need to know to look for in this prayer. Because there's something about this prayer where by the time we get to the end of it, God is so moved by what is in Daniel's heart that because of this prayer and what it reveals to us about Daniel, God is going to entrust him with the weightiest of responsibilities to steward one of the most important prophecies he has ever given to his people. So let's look at verse 21 actually. I want you to go down with me before we even get into the prayer. I want to show you how God responded to this prayer. Verse 21 says this, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, by the way, is Gabriel the man? Say no. Gabriel is an angel, but he described him in chapter eight as like a man. He came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Two things to note. Number one, angels are not omnipresent, right? They can be in one place at one time. How many of you have this maybe notion in your brain that Satan is everywhere and constantly personally tormenting you? Probably never been him because angels um, are restrained to one place at one time. And if angels need to move from point A to point B, does it take actual time? So yes, the answer is yes. But most importantly, number two, it is as if when Daniel gets to the end of this prayer, you find this, that God was waiting for somebody with a trustworthy heart to release Gabriel to share with them the prophecy, this weighty truth about the future. And it seems that as soon as Daniel even begins to open his mouth, that God says, Gabriel, Daniel, this is the guy. There's something about Daniel's prayer that so moved God to action to entrust him with weightier things. Verse 22 says this, he made me, Gabriel made Daniel understand, speaking with me and saying, oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. So if you read the whole prayer, here's what Daniel never, ever asked for. He never asked for insight. He doesn't ask for wisdom. He doesn't ask for money. The only thing he does is he confesses his sin to God and he pleads with God to send his people home to send his people home for his great name and for his glory so that the name of Yahweh would no longer be slandered. That's it. And it's interesting because God is so moved by Daniel's prayer that God says, look, I know you didn't even ask for this, but I'm gonna go above and beyond and I'm gonna give you something of great value and importance to myself. I'm gonna entrust this thing to you and your job will now be to steward this. So Gabriel in verse 23 is speaking and he says this, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out from God, presumably. He didn't even get to the end of his prayer. And God so clearly saw Daniel's trustworthy heart that he said, you know, I don't even have to listen to all the words out of his mouth. Send Gabriel. This is the man that I'm gonna entrust this most important prophecy to. And he said, I've come to tell you, for you, Daniel, you are greatly loved. Would you not love to have God when you're praying, like as you're praying, send an angel and be like, look, from the moment you started, God was like, send him this word or send her this word. And then the angel looks at you and says, you, you are greatly loved. Like God just is so pleased with your heart. I mean, this is so meaningful. There's something about Daniel's heart that as we read this, we should be able to step back and say, what is it about Daniel? 
What is it about Daniel that made God entrust him with so much? What is it about Daniel that made God send an angel to him to give him one of the most weightiest prophecies that the world had ever seen? First, I'm going to show you what was so trustworthy about Daniel, and then we're going to look at the weighty prophecy. Um, But before that, I need to show you, I need to give you a grid to read this prayer. There are five decisions that Daniel made years before. And all of these decisions are flowing out of this prayer. These are the five things to look for. I think these are the five things that God just said, you know what, check, 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 check. This guy, this guy is something else. He is unique and distinct. I want to walk through these five decisions as we look at Daniel's prayer. And then we're going to get to that weighty prophecy. Decision number one, Daniel made a decision from a very young age to diligently study the scriptures. This is not a two-minute devotional that goes in one ear out the other ear where you check it off your daily list to say, spend time with God and then it has no impact on your life. That is not what this is. Daniel made a decision to study and to know God's word as much as he possibly could. And I, I want to I show you this. This is one of the most meaningful descriptions of his relationship with the word of God. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. The first thing you see is that he's opening up the books, the scriptures. Now, does he have the New Testament? Say no. No, he does not have the New Testament. He's got the Torah and he's got some writings and some prophecies. And so Daniel has this portion of scripture and he is pouring over it. And what he sees specifically in the book of Jeremiah is that there was a period of discipline promised for God's people. And this period of discipline was gonna be 70 years. In fact, Daniel, when he was 15 years old, Daniel was swept away with the 70 year discipline of the people of God. And so Daniel's reading in the word of God and he's like, oh my goodness, Jeremiah, Jeremiah is telling me why we are in this place in Babylon, why God disciplined us, why God let Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon take us out of our land and bring us as slaves eight or 900 miles east of Babylon. And so I want to actually take you to the, to the scripture in Jeremiah, uh, verse, chapter 25, that Daniel was reading. Jeremiah 25, verse 8, God says, because you have not obeyed my words, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And that is exactly what Jerusalem became. The temple was destroyed, the city was decimated. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon, how many years? 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord. And so at the end of the 70 years, here's what Daniel knows. He knows that Babylon's gonna be punished. Okay, let's be straight. If Canada comes from the north and they come in and they enslave you, right? And God says, I'll let them enslave you for 70 years, okay? Now, at the end of the 70 years, you're like, God, what's gonna happen? He's like, I'm gonna punish the Canadians. What do you wanna know? What about us? What about us? We're still here 900 miles away. Generations of our family are in this northern cold land. What are you going to do with us? We want to go home and rebuild. And so he reads Jeremiah 26, nothing. Jeremiah 27, nothing. Jeremiah 28, nothing. And it's like you can just feel Daniel's tension. He's like, God, tell me something. Finally, Jeremiah 29.10, thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Ah, that's what he wants. You guys remember this verse? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and to give you a hope. 
The context best used in this promise is when somebody is under oppression regularly without any end in sight, and you want to know, God, did you mean my life for evil? Are you just going to have a heavy, oppressing hand on my life forever? And this is where the promise enters in and says, no. There's a limit on my discipline for you. There's a limit on oppression. There's a limit on these experiences. You need to know this. I don't give you over permanently. I have plans for your good. You need to wait. You need to be patient. And he says this in verse 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. I want you to, I want you to notice this. Daniel prays in chapter nine for 20 some odd verses because he is obeying scripture. That's why he does it. So how is, how, how is Daniel going to know whether or not the people of God can go back? The people of God are going to get on their face, and they're going to start praying to God, and they're going to start confessing. And so Daniel, when he sees in God's word what God requires, he gets on his face, and he begins praying. I want you to just look at verse 9 in Daniel chapter 9. Here's what he says. We have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. And go to verse 11. Just watch all the times in this prayer. Daniel's referencing the authority of God's word because God's word is determining how he sees reality. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. Look at verse 13. As it's written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Do you see this? At every moment throughout his prayer, he, it, is, it is saturated with scripture because Daniel's mind is saturated with the word of God. And God looks at Daniel and says, you are a person that when you see my word, you believe it to be true and you act on it. That's powerful. Now look at verse 14. There's this great word, therefore. And it says, therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity, uh, has kept ready the calamity and brought it upon us for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done and we have not obeyed his voice. Um, let me be straight. If everyone around you is sinning, the leaders, the government, the economy is being tanked. You have evil people running things, right? Your kids, your grandkids, the entire nation, your oppressors, everybody. You know, you know what we would say in that moment? Most people would say, God, if you were good, you would fix this. Anyone relate to that? Daniel does nothing of the sorts. That wagging finger that we Christians feel permission to point at God, he puts it down and here's what he says. You are righteous. You are righteous. Now, it's one thing if the calamity is out there. It's another thing when the calamity is in here and in my life and in my family. How much more do we feel vindicated to take our wagging finger at God and say, if you were good, you would. Daniel has been living this life of exile and oppression for 65 years plus. Decade after decade after decade living in a 70-year discipline primarily of the sins of the nation that he, as a young kid, probably didn't commit in the same way that everyone else did. And here he is swept up along with everyone else's discipline, and he says, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. The Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. Decision number two, to pray with passion. You cannot 
fake passion and prayer. Amen? You can try. <laughs> oh yeah, God sees the heart. You know, <laughs> that's, oh. Passion comes from two places. Pain and practice. You get the pain part naturally. You know, when you're in pain, life isn't working. God, please. Those are some of the most passionate prayers on the planet, right? Fix this now. Make right my wrong life. You know that passion, right? Practice is different. Daniel is not somebody who is just reacting or responding. Daniel is praying because this has been the rhythm of his life since he was a young boy. <clears throat> when you think about a blues guitarist, if you guys ever listened to really good blues, you can feel the pain of these lives. You can feel their oppression. You can feel generations of pain in their music. It's one of the most beautiful genres. And what's interesting is that um, these men are practiced. The, the first day um, a blues guitarist picks up a guitar, he has no idea how to play and he has no idea how to express the pain he's feeling. But through much practice, blues guitarists learn how to communicate the pain that they have. And many people do not know how to actually go to God in prayer because we're unpracticed. We do not know. We know how to go to God in moments of tragedy, but we do not have the skill, the crude wisdom to go before God in a practiced way where we are genuinely passionate because this is a regular part of our life. Well, most people don't realize that passionate prayer is a result of disciplined prayer over long periods of time. Daniel is a man who God is not just saying, oh, you, you know, you had a hard life, you had a hard moment, you're just going to respond in prayer. We see throughout the book of Daniel, Daniel's prayer life is disciplined and intentional. And out of this pain and practice is genuine, emotional, passionate prayer. Look at what verse three says. Then I turned my face to the Lord God. After I saw what his word said, I turned seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy. Catch this. With fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and I made confession. This is not like some has, haphazard reaction. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen anybody pray with sackcloth and ashes. I never have. Culturally, Americans don't do that. Some cultures in the world do. Um, sometimes cultures do that out of tradition. But there's something about Daniel where this, was, this transcended tradition. Daniel put on this uncomfortable sackcloth as a metaphor of, I am just uncomfortable. My, all my circumstances are just not what I want. Ashes, from ash I came. I've got nothing. I can't fix this. It's out of my control. And there were these really beautiful, tangible expressions that communicated <clears throat> his actual desperation for God to intervene. Decision number three, to trust God despite. Verse four says this, O Lord, the great and awesome God. How many of you want to call God great and awesome when all your life is seen as calamity? Anybody? <clears throat> Consider his context. Who keeps covenant and steadfast love. You made a promise. You told us this would only last for 70 years. And because you said it, I believe it. You have never let us down. <clears throat> You've never failed your covenant. You've never failed because it is your nature to be a promise keeper. And when you say 70 years, it's gonna be 70 years. So God, I'm coming to you and I trust you. I trust that at the end of 70 years, you're gonna end this thing because you are good. No, decision number four, to choose humility. Pride is our default. Humility is a choice. I want you to catch this. You have to choose humility. Every one of you, you got pride by nature. Me too, right? Here's what he says. We have sinned. And we have done wrong, and we have acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, 
and all the people of the land. So Daniel, earlier in the book, tells us that this. Daniel was basically blameless. Daniel was a guy that when people tried to find something wrong with his life, nobody could ever find anything wrong. And Daniel could have, in this moment, said, God, this isn't fair. I have not sinned like these people have sinned. I have not done the things that are deserving of exile. At 15 years old, he probably watched his family killed. He watched his friends killed. He watches everything that they'd ever known, their whole religious system obliterated in a moment. I don't deserve this. That's what pride would have said. But Daniel understood something interesting. He did, let me tell you what he did understand. Daniel's not a dummy. Daniel understood he is better than most of the Jews, okay? Horizontally, right? And you know this. There's some people you look at and you're like, I'm a little more righteous than them, right? You can act like it's, you don't think that, but everybody has that thought. And there are some people who make a lot of really bad decisions over and over again all the time, right? And you may not do as many bad things. Horizontally, you can look at each other and say, I might be better than some people. By God's grace, if you miss that, well, that's all pride, but like, you can do that. But here's what Daniel knows. The only difference between me and them is not the sin, it's the degree. That's it. Because the same heart of rebellion in them is the same heart of Daniel. The only difference is Daniel may not have given himself more fully over to it. So Daniel can sit here and he can say, we have sinned. Now, some commentators are going to tell you, and maybe this is true, that Daniel was just sacrificially like Jesus, taking on responsibility for their sin. It was an act of sacrificial identity because of family. I really actually don't think that is accurate. I think what Daniel is doing is he's saying this. I may not be as bad by worshiping Baal and doing crazy things, but I have the same sin issues that they do. It's just a matter of degree. And I deserve this calamity because of my sin, because my point of reference is not you. It's Jesus, it's Yahweh, it's the Messiah. And I think Daniel got this. Daniel chose humility. You ever have a kid uh, and you're trying to get them to admit they're wrong? Say you're sorry, sorry, right? Uh, what did you do? I probably wasn't nice, probably. I wasn't nice, what did you do wrong? <sighs> I mean, I guess I sort of, you know, but they, but they, you don't know what they did, okay? No, out of anger, you hit your sister in the face. Out of anger, I hit my sister in the face. Like, you know what I mean? It's like trying to get them to be specific is like, this is one of the most difficult human experiences. By the way, it doesn't stop with four and a half year old boys, okay? This goes up to like 80 year old men, right? Getting men and women who are older or younger or alive to admit with specificity what we have done wrong is incredibly difficult. Daniel is going before the Lord and genuinely sees in the word of God that he has infractions and sin before God. He is guilty. He deserves the calamity because of his sin. He's aligned his mind and his heart with God's word. And here's what he's doing. He's coming back and he's saying this, look, God, I have sinned and I deserve this. This is on me too. And I'm not gonna sit here and compare myself to then. I'm gonna humbly come before you. This is a decision he had to make to declare with clarity, not just their sin, but his own sin. Number five, decision number five, to worship in difficulty. To worship, not wag. Here's what he says. To you, O Lord, belongs what? Righteousness. But to us, open shame. At every moment in this prayer, he would have almost, it feels like the right to say, but. But why didn't you? But where were you? But how could you justify yourself, God? And he takes this dumb wagging finger and he puts it down and he says, you are righteous and your word is true. He goes on and he says, as it is to this day, the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel 
those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you to us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. When you read his prayer, you need to look for these five decisions because they overflow into his entire prayer. And these five things I believe God just saw and he said, that is a man that I can trust. Here's, here's my question for myself. If I were God, would I trust me with more? So um, a village, um, one of the things that I've really appreciated about um, the spirit of Village Church is that I've heard regularly, and by the way, these are great aspirations. I want more influence. I want more leadership. I want more ministry opportunity. I want God to entrust me with things more. And here's what I think I can look back at myself and look back at you and say this. What is God looking for? Proven trustworthiness. Proven trustworthiness. And one of the things that I have asked God for multiple times at Village Church is, Lord, I would love the privilege to steward people as they come to faith in Jesus Christ and help make disciples of them. And one of the questions that I just hear back in my brain is this. Michael, are you in Village Church ready for that? It is admirable. It is desirable. But what if I brought in 100 people who came to faith in Jesus Christ in this community? Are you ready to disciple them? And our staff behind the scenes are really working on creating a leadership culture, atmosphere, uh, and things that would really help us love and disciple people who come to faith in Jesus. Uh, and so this is one of those things where I think the Lord continually comes back to me and comes back to us and says, okay, you want more. God entrusts weighty things to those, he can, to those people he can trust, to those people who are proven trustworthy. And now we're gonna watch, uh, point number two in your notes, the weightier things. We're gonna watch as God trusts Daniel with, uh, again, the weightiest prophecy. I'm gonna tell you why it is so important and why it's so valuable and why it's so important. Because in this prophecy, God tells Daniel to the year when the Messiah is going to come. I don't know if you knew this prophecy was in the Bible. It's unbelievable. It is unbelievably accurate and moving and it will make you step back and say uh, that God who inspired the book of Daniel is the God of history because of its uncanny and unbelievable accuracy. And so we get to verse 24 and here's what happens. Gabriel is sent quickly from heaven and here's the prophecy. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Okay, now we gotta just pause for a moment. I need to have a, a real-time conversation with you, okay? Uh, this prophecy is detailed, it's complex, it's difficult. Some of you, you come to church, you're like, I don't wanna think, you do the thinking for me, stop that, okay? Open up your notes, take notes, use your brains. Uh, you can understand this, it's simple math and takes a little bit of intellectual work. I do understand that there are people who do not like these parts of sermons. I think these are amazing. So overcome, you may be ADD, like focus, okay? Because this is one of the coolest, most inspiring and encouraging prophecies in scripture when you understand that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the Messiah to the year God told his people when the Messiah was coming. So let's get our brains together and I want to just go through some details here. Uh, weeks is not a great translation. It's, it's not that it's wrong, um, but here's what it means. It literally says 70 sevens. Now, if you take 70 times seven, how many years is that? 
490. Those of you who said other numbers, I love you, but you're wrong. 490 years. And so there's going to be this period of 490 years. And this period of 490 years is broken up into three distinct and separate parts. Um, one of the things that God wants to show you in, this, in these distinctions is that he is meticulous in planning the details of history. God is a genius, and he is going to bring together multiple purposes through 490 years and do incredible things in space, time, and history. But God is not just one of these general planners. God is like one of those detailed organizers who has like organizing books for organizing books and has like protocols for everything. Like he's very meticulous and detailed and all my OCD engineers said amen, amen, good. So there's three parts to this and the first part has seven sevens. So what is seven times seven equals 49. So good. I mean, it's like right on the board. So either you can read or do math. I'm trying to make this easy for you, okay? Part one equals 49 years. Part two is going to be 62 seven. 62 times seven equals 434 years. Your genius is off the cuff. That was amazing. And then finally, there's going to be this last seven. There's going to be one seven. And one times seven equals seven. That's so good. I'm so proud of you. I'm glad you didn't say 17. This is seven. And so in verse 24, it goes on and says, 70 weeks, 70 sevens, 490 years, are decreed about your people and the holy city. So Daniel, you want to know what's going to happen with the Israelites, what's going to happen with Jerusalem, what's going to happen with Israel. Here's, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be 490 years. And in this 490 years, the following things are going to be accomplished in this time period. Number one, God is going to finish the transgression, meaning he's going to allow Israel's sin to play out for a certain amount of time. Their sin is going to build up. He's going to end all of this. He's going to allow them to finish this punishment. But then, here's what's going to happen. At the end of the 400, uh, we'll say actually 483 years. You'll get that in a minute. But we're going to put an end to sin. By the way, who put an end to sin? His name's Jesus. Jesus, good. And we're going to atone for iniquity. Who atoned for iniquity on the cross? Jesus, good. And then we're going to bring in everlasting righteousness, and then we're going to seal both the vision and the prophet to anoint the most holy place. The seal here means to vindicate and validate, to put his seal of approval. Every vision, every prophet, every person who came before him and said this day is coming, this is going to be an act of declaration over all of humanity that this is real and this is true. So verse 24 gives us the big picture time frame. And then 25, 26, and 27, break it down. So you ready to break it down? All right, section one is seven sevens, which is how many years? 49 years. And this is gonna be a period of restoration and the building of the temple and the city. This is gonna be a period of preparing for the Messiah. They're gonna build the infrastructure of Israel and the temple system to prepare for the Messiah who's gonna be coming a long way down the road. Verse 25 says, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, two or four the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven sevens. So let me just fill you in on how this is going to work. Uh, Daniel, uh, one of the kings is going to issue a decree. The decree will be to go home and rebuild. From the day that decree is made, there is going to be 
49 years. The clock starts ticking right then. The clock is going to start ticking. 444 BC, King Artaxerxes sends the Israelites back to rebuild the city. And so here's what we know. We know when the clock starts ticking. Now, some people have tried different ways to count this, whatever, but we know for the most part, the most accurate way to understand this is King Artaxerxes, 444 BC. Now, there's something you need to know as you're counting numbers in Old Testament prophecy. Number one, um, how many days are in the American calendar year? 365. Um, that is not how the Jewish calendar works. There's going to be 360 days in a Jewish calendar, 12, 30-day months, okay? And so what you have to understand is that as you're trying to count in our calendar and you're trying to make sense and coincide with the Jewish calendar, a little bit of thinking to go on here. So the dates are going to be different. Men and women smarter than you and I have put this together. And here's what we know. 444 BC to 395 BC is this 49-year period of seven sevens. And it works out actually almost perfectly in this time they built and rebuilt the city and the temple, and they began to function again. Now, section two, or part two, is 62 sevens, which is how many years? 434 years. So 434 years after the initial, se initial section, um, we're going to have something very different. There is going to be, it says 62 weeks, 62 sevens, and it shall be built again with square and moat, but in a troubled time. What's going to be built? the temple, the city, the infrastructure to prepare for the Messiah. And here's what's going to happen. You have 49 years plus 434 years equals 483 years. Genius, okay? Right? 483 years from the moment that the clock starts ticking until the end of this 62 weeks. And here's what's going to happen. Uh, the temple's going to be rebuilt, but the people of God will live under oppression. And so it went from the Medo-Persians to the Persians, to the Greeks, to the Romans. And so by the time Jesus is crucified and risen, uh, are they under oppression? The answer is absolutely. And so he's saying there's going to be a temple, there's going to be an infrastructure, there's going to be a system, but it's going to function under oppression for this many years. And I love this because did you know that almost to the date uh, from 444 BC, March 5th, all the way to March 30th, AD 30, is exactly 383 or 483 years, at least Jewish years in the prophetic calendar. And so you get this like, whoa, like he literally is telling them year to year to year from the moment of this all the way up. And many scholars have, have identified that the day that this would have culminated would have been the triumphal entry of Jesus, Palm Sunday, you know, Hosanna, Palms. And it's interesting because when Jesus comes in on Palm Sunday, he references Daniel chapter nine and other parts of Daniel multiple times. It's interesting because this passage finds its full fruition, it seems, on Palm Sunday. And this is where you step back and you're like, there is no way on God's green earth this kind of historical accuracy is at all possible. With all of these disconnected authors of scripture and this person in this century and this person in that century, and here's what you find. Our God is the God of not just general history, but detailed and specific history. He is a genius and he controls events in ways you and I could never plausibly understand. We get to verse 26. It says, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. Who is this? Jesus. And in this cutting off, atones for sins, makes right our sin with God. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And it was in AD 70, ultimately, that uh, the Romans came in and they destroyed the temple, sacked Jerusalem, and these desolations actually, literally, historically occurred. Now, we're going to get to this third section, and let me be straight with you. This is where people love to throw down. 
So much debate. Now, you're gonna find alternate understandings that shift dates and things in the first 69 weeks, right? Generally speaking, though, the vast majority of, of Christian scholars would say the first 69 weeks are an uncannily accurate um, depiction of history up until the uh, triumphal entry or the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like, uncanny. But the 70th week, this drives people nuts. I mean, it drives them crazy, and I'm gonna be honest. It drives me crazy. I don't like this 70th week. I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to put all my cards on the table for you so we can all be on the same plane here, okay? Uh, in the 70th week, it feels when you read it like it should be sequential, right? So in this last week, one times seven equals how many years? Seven years. It feels like after the death and resurrection of Jesus, immediately a seven-year period shall be ushered in uh, that they're going to talk about. But here's the problem. Uh, history does not give us any insight or any inclination that what this last seven talks about happened. Nobody can find it. It just doesn't make sense. And so what we find is this in chapter 27. After the 62 weeks, here's what we have. And he shall make a strong covenant with the many for one week. You're going to be wondering, who's the he and who's the many? It seems like the he is going to be an antichrist figure or the antichrist. And he's going to make a covenant with, it seems, God, God's people. And for half of the week, he shall put into sacrifices. So what's half of seven years? Three and a half years, good job. So the seven-year period, this one week, is broken up into two sections. Uh, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So here's what happens. Jesus says, uh, or Daniel says, okay, there's going to be um, seven times seven. Got it. Historically, I can put that into place. Then there's going to be 42 times seven. Got it. 483 years. Put those together. They culminate the death of Christ. Then there's going to be a last seven-year period where desolations are going to occur. Can't find it. And so some scholars, and, uh, and I, I can't disagree with them, honestly. This is probably where I would land personally, is they say, look, clearly there's, a, there's a, a, a gap even in the way the parts are described. There's 69 weeks, and then there's one week. Okay. Uh, many scholars, and I would happen to agree with them, would say that this is obviously a time of tribulation that it's going to be postponed until the end of time before Jesus comes back um, to judge the living and the dead. So probably that seems to be the most rational understanding of how this is going to play itself out. And so honestly, like it's frustrating because when you read the 70 weeks, you expect they're going to be sequential, right? Um, but they're clearly not. And so one of the things we can say is, well, we have a little bit of permission to do this because even the prophecy itself divides up these weeks. And so maybe God historically can divide up these weeks. There's a lot of reasons why scholars think this is so. And I think it's probably the most compelling argument that allows the text to be true and keeps this functioning as a prophecy that is legitimate and trustworthy. Here's what I know. 483 years, they culminate with Jesus. I have a hunch the last seven years are gonna work themselves out just fine. And so uh, God is gonna be proven to be true. So before we get to some of the final so what's, I do have to stop here because um, I want to give you four encouragements. Uh, I cannot tell you how many different views there are of this 70th week in our church. It is grand and exciting. Some of you want to throw down. Some people might even leave the church because they don't like where I stand on it. Right. So I want to give you four encouragements on this 70th week, okay? So here's encouragement number one. It's okay if the 70th week is confusing. It's okay if you go home and you start studying and you see 483 weeks sequentially happening, culminating with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Awesome. And then you look and you say, I can't find this 70th week. It's okay if it's confusing because for 2,000 years, Christian scholars have tried to wrap their brains around how this 70th week works, which brings me to point number two. Don't worry about agreement. 
there are some, we'll say, subsections of Christianity that would make agreement on this issue a requirement for you even going to church with them. That is over the top. Uh, for 2,000 years, the church has struggled to understand this and put the events of history in a timeline that makes sense. For example, some of you would say, Michael, where's the rapture? And I would say, that's a great question. I'm not even going to talk about that right now because the text doesn't. But did you know that's a new doctrine, generally speaking, as of 1830s in Christian history? So for some of you who have said for 2,000 years, the church has always believed in that. No, they haven't. They haven't necessarily disagreed with it, but it's not as clear and simple and easy as people want to make it. And so we just step back and we say, this is hard. It's difficult. It's not easy. It's complex. Uh, and we don't have the mind of God, but here's, we do know the big picture. We know the 483, but it's difficult. This last one may not feel like an encouragement, but it is. Heartache is coming. Heartache is coming. The reason why this is an encouragement is because when it comes, you don't have to wag your finger at God and ask him a thousand questions. Where would you? How could you? You can step back and say, you told me exactly what was going to happen. Finally, number four is God has a plan for victory. And this plan is detailed. It is meticulous. And it will be executed with perfection on the exact day, time, and moment that God wants it to be executed. So I want to I close by going to <clears throat> talking about something just generally bigger as a part of this whole question about why would God put this scary stuff into place and why would God tell us all this stuff. Uh, there is a rhythm and a cycle throughout history of oppression. Um, there are age-old games that Satan plays and they follow the same pattern every single time. Here's what he does. Uh, signs, wars, rumors of wars. He starts riling people up, nations against nations. Um, and then what happens is there's a leader. Usually out of these wars, there's a despot, a dictator who comes up, uh, tries to make alliances, ultimately oppresses God's people, um, persecutes them, kills many people. Uh, then there's this feeling of helplessness where God's people say, oh, where are you, God? How could you? And then there's a great apostasy, which means that um, generally God's people, they get mad at God because he doesn't perform for them and then they all leave and then God intervenes and saves the day. Um, this is a cycle that has gone on over and over and over again all throughout history. Uh, this is a cycle that we see in the Middle East right now. We know this is not the ultimate thing, right? The ultimate tribulation, the ultimate iteration of this, but iterations of this are happening locally and nationally all over over the world right now, but ultimately it seems what Jesus is telling us is that yes, Satan is playing the same game throughout history in all these different places, but one day there's going to be a final iteration of this cycle. <clears throat> this cycle is going to culminate in what we call the Great Tribulation, this end times period, this one seven where the desolator is given freedom to desolate, where God allows we'll just say uncanny, disturbing things to happen on this planet, but he lets it happen for a limited period of time. And this is why we say this last year seems to be postponed into the future because we can't find anything in our history books that even allows us to understand it in the first century right after Jesus died on the cross. So I want to show you this in Matthew chapter 24. Turn with me to 24, Matthew 24, and this is the text we'll end on. Matthew 24, we're going to start in verse 1. I'll have this up on the screen as well. Matthew 24, Jesus is coming to the end of his earthly ministry. And what has informed him is the book of Daniel. Um, probably because Jesus ultimately inspired it, but also in his earthly ministry. He's going to take so much of the vernacular, the verbiage, the vocabulary of Daniel, and especially Daniel chapter 29, and he's going to repeat them for us, and he's going to show us what they mean. 
And what's interesting is as Daniel, as Jesus goes through Matthew chapter 24, as he says these things, you're going to find some really interesting and confusing things being said. So let's walk through this. I want to show you this. And then I want to show you that even Jesus himself tells us and shows us the rhythm and cycle of oppression that Satan likes to play. Verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Where are they at? Say the temple. The temple, good. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. When was that prophesied? Daniel chapter 9, right? They're expecting this. They know there's going to come a time when the desolator will do these things. In verse 3, he sat on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Because their expectation is that once this happens, that the Messiah, the anointed one, is going to usher in everlasting righteousness and peace. Here's what prophecy did not reveal until the time of Christ that there would be two advents, two comings of Jesus. There would be a first coming and a second coming. Old Testament prophecy pushed them together. I think God did it, honestly, just to keep people on their toes, right? And so there's a first coming where he comes to deal with sin, and there's a second coming where he comes to deal ultimately with the final judgment. And so here's what happens. And we see in verse four, uh, he gives the first uh, sign that this iteration, this cycle is happening. And Jesus answered them and said, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ. And they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. And and when was this prophesied? In the book of Daniel. And so when you start seeing these things, this is the act of Satan. He's riling people up. He's getting things ready. He knows that wars and rumors of, of wars are one of the greatest ways to put God's people on edge and to get power and control. Ultimately, in verse 7, he'll raise up a leader. These leaders often are called antichrists. They're people who oppose God and his word. And we see in scripture and in 1 John, we see that there are many antichrists, but there's going to ultimately be one final iteration of this antichrist. There are local and national antichrists. And then of ultimately, there will be one final global antichrist. Antichrist, but here's what he says. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places and all of these are but the beginning of the birth pains. And we see historically that these wars are how Antichrist rise up and they get power through these experiences. There'll be oppression, verse nine. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and put you to death, FYI. How many of you are like, I'm thinking about coming to Christ, thinking about believing in him. And he's like, there'll be tribulation and you'll be put to death, right? Okay, um, Number four, helplessness. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. You're going to look abandoned. Everybody's going to just loathe you, and it's all going to be because of your association with Jesus. Number five, apostasy. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will go cold. And he's saying, look, you need to be ready. Because if this room right now could be divided up, m- many of you wouldn't make it. You'd fall away. You'd fall after teaching that scratches the itch in your ears. You'd want people to tell you it's all going to be fine. This is what people have done. Every time there is this, we'll say, a cycle where Satan rouses oppression, he does it by wars, rumors of wars, ultimately a leader, ultimately oppression, helplessness, and then apostasy. And then at the right moment, God comes in and he saves the day, verse 13. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. 
What I love about this is that Jesus takes all of this imagery, all of these experiences from Daniel, and he basically says, look, there are gonna be iterations of this, but ultimately there will be one final iteration of this. There will be one final global experience of this, and you need to be ready for this. You need to be, you need to be ready should this happen, should the Lord allow you to be in it. And then you're thinking right now, okay, Michael, do you believe the rapture is gonna happen before or in the middle or after? It doesn't even matter. You be prepared for whatever comes. That's what you need to be prepared for. And I know that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead and he will make this right. We, we need to be prepared because regularly in these iterations, you don't find the people of God being preserved from them, but they are enduring in them. And so Matthew 24 ends like this. Immediately after, we're in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Do you remember what book of the Bible the Son of Man imagery came from? Daniel. Daniel, good job. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why? Because the Bible tells us at the end when he comes back, they will wag their finger at him because they, God didn't perform for them. Even when they say, see Jesus in all of his glory and might, they still wag. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, meaning from every part of the earth and from one end of heaven to the other. The sure arc of history has Jesus reigning victorious and us by his side. And Daniel is sitting here not asking for this prophecy. This is not what Daniel wanted. Every time Daniel has received a prophecy, what has it made him do? It has made him sick. Next week, actually, um, the whole, honestly, if I could be like totally selfish, it's the one chapter in Daniel that I, I wanted to preach this book for this chapter. And Daniel is so sickened by the vision that God gives him, it leaves him in bed for three weeks at a time. Daniel is not asking for more insight and more understanding. But God looks at him and says, look, Daniel, I wanna give this information to you because your people, long after you're dead, are gonna need this knowledge. And when, and when the Messiah comes 483 years after the decree and dies and pays for the sins of the people, they will be able to look back and say, our God is a genius.